0: Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration. So we're in First Samuel chapter fourteen, and let's open in prayer. God, we thank you for your Word, and we ask Lord that you would speak to us through it, uh, revealing to us the things that uh, we need to hear. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, how many of you have coached or played competitive sports before? Anyone? Almost everyone. This is just such an athletic group. Um. So, what if you, as a coach or a player, suggested to your team the, the the championship game that evening that you you suggested that you guys fast that entire day before you competed? What do you think would happen? You would win. No, you wouldn't win, right? And um, you you didn't play, did you? You haven't played. You're the one. So. You see, our bodies need physical nourishment to do physically challenging tasks. And in ancient warfare, where the fighting is face-to-face, hand-to-hand, it wasn't like this long-range missile shooter sniper thing or whatever. It's, it's face-to-face. You, uh, you had to have your strength. It, it was a physically challenging task. So to fast during this day-long battle, it, it's a pretty foolish thing. And what we're going to see in chapter 14 is is such foolishness under the veil of being religious. And we're going to see Saul, who is very pious, who's very religious. And we're also going to read of living a life of faith. And sometimes to someone who's not familiar with the contrast between the two of of religious and faithfulness, it's hard to tell the difference. So let's just start out verse 1. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about six hundred men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and sharp rock on the other side, and the name of one was Bozes and the name of the other Sena. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah So we get this picture of whom Jonathan was, and you can see that he's this fearless, take-charge kind of guy, someone who didn't tell his father where he was going because he was probably worried that his father would stop him. And what is Saul doing at this time? You know, he's staying at the base with his 600 men. And we find out from chapter 13 that, that Saul won't have a dynasty. That he, he hasn't lost his position as king yet, but he's not going to have an heir to the throne. But here we find him with his troops and Jonathan's, Jonathan is moving out to check out the enemy. And did you notice that Saul has a priest with him in verse 3? A priest who is not Samuel. And the priest is Ahijah. Ahijah who is of a rejected line of priests, and he's, he's of the line of Eli. And according to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 30-36, through 36, God would wipe out that line of priests because of their unfaithfulness and the abuses from Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And here we have a king who will not have a dynasty, who was rejected, and we also have a priest who is no longer of an accepted priestly line, who was rejected. And we have these two rejected people starting off this chapter, rejected politically and rejected religiously, spiritually. And Saul was portrayed as a very religious man, but, but not a faithful man. And Saul was religious like the priest's great-grandfather Eli, who was not favored by God. And then you look at the setting in verses 4 and 5, you recall that Michmash is about seven miles north of Jerusalem. And south of that was Geba, where Israel was. And in between these two places is, was the seasonal stream that ran through it called the Wadi Suenit that goes to the Jordan River. And the Wadi Suenit cuts a deep gorge through the terrain to the south of Mi'kmash, which acts as this barrier to any of the traffic going back and forth. So you can imagine in your head what, what it looks like there. And the only way of traversing the gorge was to go through this narrow corridor called the Pass. And these steep cliffs, they rose up on each side of the corridor, and Michmash was on the north side of the wadi, and Giba was on the southern cliff, and the cliff on the side of Michmash was called Bozes, which means glistening or slippery, and then on the south side was Senna, which means thorny. So you get the picture of the layout of the land, these two cliffs with this deep gorge. One side of the cliffs is slippery with with uh, the enemy over there. And the other side is, is, is thorny with, with uh, the Israelites there. So you can imagine that this terrain is not easy to fight in. And what Jonathan and his armor bearer did was they went down into the gorge. And let's continue on in our story. And now keep your ears open to hear Jonathan's imagination of faith. Jonathan's imagination of faith. Verse 6, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, come. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And this is my favorite verse in this entire chapter. See, Jonathan's this pretty bold guy who who has a ton of faith in God. And if we were were to ask Jonathan, How do you know God will work for you, Jonathan? I think Jonathan would answer, You you put yourself into the situation and you see what he does. And his faith is based on the knowledge of God and his knowledge of God's ability. He knew if God was with him, that he could succeed. And Jonathan stretches the imagination of his faith. And this is really cool to see in the middle of all this fear, isn't it? If you look at Israel at this time, there's a lot of hesitancy. There's a lot of fear in Israel. But here we have Jonathan and his armor bearer putting themselves out there and seeing how God is going to use them. And God can save by many, or He can save by few. And they had the courage to find out. And it wasn't this blind faith that Jonathan was exercising. He he knew God to be omniscient. He knew God to be omnipotent. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. He doesn't need anyone to have His back. He's good by Himself. And perhaps Jonathan was at peace with God's promises like in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 7, where it says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And that didn't mean that Jonathan was 100% sure that this was what the Lord had planned in this particular case or, or, or that His promise applied to this particular case. But that's why Jonathan said in verse 6, It may be. That the Lord will work for us, it may be. Who knows? And Jonathan wasn't one hundred percent sure, but he wasn't. But he, what he was sure about was the power of God. He was certain that God was all powerful. He was certain that God was all knowing, and he was convinced that God could, but just didn't know how God would act in this particular case. He wasn't sure. And faith, you know what faith does? Is it guards the freedom of God. See, Jonathan wasn't a word of faith kind of guy. And you notice that he doesn't command or declare or claim anything of God. And we can't demand God to do anything. And that's, that's kind of an arrogant attitude to have, to, to have towards an almighty God, isn't it? And he just knew that with God in the mix, that anything can happen. Jonathan said, it may be that the Lord will work for us. See, God had the freedom to do as he wills in Jonathan's faith, just as he does in our faith. God has the freedom to do as he wills in our faith. And Jonathan respects that freedom from God and says, it may be. God might or he might not, but we'll, t- we'll take a risk of faith and-, and put ourselves in a situation to exercise our faith, and we'll stretch our imagination in regards to our faith, and we'll put our faith at the disposal of God, and let's just see what God does. And that's the imagination of our faith. And some may question Jonathan's faith because he's just not certain. You have to be certain if you're faithful. You have to know. But here we see that Jonathan says it may be. So is that not faith? I know it's not a denial of faith. It's simply the humility of faith. Faith isn't arrogant and it doesn't exist independent of God. Faith is modest and it's dependent on God. And faith leaves freedom for God to act as He wills. Faith is confident to to admit, I don't know. And and to to not be certain about what God will do, and for us to say maybe, or perhaps. When I was in high school, my father had this serious nerve damage in his spine that uh, caused him a lot of pain, and he couldn't work. And he was an architect, and back then they didn't have the computer stuff, everything was by hand. And uh, so I, I had to take him to therapy every day my senior year in high school. And um, I remember having to do this because um, I, I had a perfect attendance award from kindergarten through high school. And, and the secretary at the high school was uh, really mad at me for some reason. She said, you don't have perfect attendance. You miss school every day. And uh, I was like, it's not my fault. You know, my dad's calling me out. I, I did attend school. And she raised this whole thing. But anyway, I got my pin. So, and um, my, my mom was militant. Like, it didn't matter how sick I was. You're going to school. Didn't matter. I'm dying. I'm, uh, go to school. Go to school, right? And, and I remember that he used to have me take him to these faith healing services in the evening. Not all the time, but it happened several times. And I recall a bunch of people going up to the stage to get healed, and some of them claiming to be healed, but none of them saying that they weren't. None of them. All of them were healed. And my dad was one of those who went up in faith hoping to get some relief from his pain. And we went to a lot of these services, and he didn't get healed. He didn't get any alleviation from his pain in any of those services, even though the faith healer named and claimed that he would. And so I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about faith healers and faith healing services where whoever comes up will get healing, and th- that there's no doubt that you will get healed if, if you show up to this service. You will. You will get healed that there isn't um, a maybe or a perhaps that there's no willingness to say in the humility of faith that God will do whatever he wills to do that there's no freedom or leaving any room for God A, a true humility and imagination of faith is content to say maybe perhaps perhaps God will work for us because God is not hindered to save by many or by few And this allows us to think greatly of God as it recognizes His omnipotence, His omniscience, and not about our abilities to channel God to do something. And we don't determine God's will and where He applies His will. God reserves the right to exercise His will, and that ensures our humility, and that we don't get proud of what we are able to make God do. We often don't fully understand God's plans for our lives and those around us. And I didn't understand why my dad had to suffer that pain for so many years. And sometimes what happens in our lives is just simply mysterious. It's mysterious. But may we recognize Jonathan's imagination of faith. And that we think big regarding our faith while respecting God's freedom to do His will, recognizing His omniscience, recognizing His omnipotence. And I'm not saying that God doesn't heal in those healing services. I'm not saying that. Some of those might have been legitimate. But I think it's healthy for us not to play God and say, I don't know. And let God be God. God may choose to heal, or He might not. So who are we to confine and direct what God does? And how can our expectations dictate the will of God? And I think having an attitude of who knows what God will do, it allows the freedom of God to be respected. Verse 7, So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. Jonathan wasn't completely sure of what God's plans were, but he knew that they would succeed if God was with them. And Jonathan had an attitude of who knows what the Lord will do, but I want to find out. Now, if if you were his armor bearer, would you be excited to be with Jonathan, or would you be scared out of your mind to be with Jonathan? Excited? This guy's awesome. Let's go fight, right? Verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. little sarcasm there. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. It's like, come up here and we're going to show you a lesson or two. Young fellows. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about twenty men within about a half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was very great trembling. God bless Jonathan's efforts. He and the armor bearer had to climb up this slippery face of a cliff and then they had to fight after climbing up to the Philistines. This guy was in shape. Then they took out 20 Philistines and the Philistines were probably feeling pretty secure where they're at. They're thinking like, hey, there's no way anyone's going to climb up this slippery cliff from there. There's no way. That would be dumb. And the Philistines were probably just there and said, eh, let's we talk to these guys, let's go back to playing cards. And and they probably thought there was no way for Jonathan or any Israelite to make it up this slippery face of the cliff, and, and God confirmed their actions. And this surprise attack, it confused the Philistine camp. They had no idea that they could be attacked. They thought that they were safe with this natural barrier there. Then God hits them up with this earthquake that, that shakes the land, which reminds us of first Samuel chapter seven verses ten through eleven, doesn't it? First, uh, First Samuel chapter seven, verse ten and eleven. Now, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Beth Car. Now, who is the man of faith back in chapter seven? Samuel. Now, who's the man of faith in chapter fourteen? Jonathan. And the last time the Israelites beat the Philistines in a large battle, there was a man of faith. And let's look at verse 13 again. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed him. So it's like Jonathan out there, he's knocking him down. And then the armor bearer comes behind and he kills him. And you notice that the road to the actual fight was difficult. He climbed on his hands and his knees. He couldn't just hike up there on his his feet and just go up. He had to struggle there. And Jonathan and his armor-bearer had to work hard just to get into the fight. And sometimes we're so focused on the fight that we forget the work that it takes to even enter the fight. In verse 16, Now the watchmen of Saul and Gebeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened, while Saul talked to the priest, that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. So the watchmen for Israel saw this huge Philistine army melting away. It was scattering. So we, so we see what a huge difference there is when God's people actually have God with them in a fight. And you notice something that happened when Saul and his priests were hanging around under the pomegranate tree? Nothing. They were hanging out. And did you notice what Saul did in verse 18? He says, bring the ark of God here. He was being religious again. Right, He sought after a religious object. And he, and he changes his, his mind in verse 19 when he sees the noise from the confusion getting greater. But, but this is typical of Saul during his decline as a leader. You know He's rash, as we see in verses 18 and 19. And we also see his rash behavior in chapter 13, verse 9, when he asks for the offerings to be brought to him. And in chapter 14, verse 24, when he issues a mandatory fast. He has this behavior of rashness. And something about Saul though is—he's is, uh, not a—he's car- not a coward though. He—he he joined in the fight, but you notice that he's more of a follower here, even though he's the king. And then back in chapter eleven, he was the leader. He was anointed by the Spirit. He led. He wasn't a follower. And so that so the tide has turned, and and the Hebrews get back into the fight. And those who ran and the Ephraimites who went into hiding got back into the fight. And it's interesting how winning just changes things, isn't it? How the momentum changes and how people join in on that. And, and, and the winning was all because of God who, who used an earthquake. And God used Jonathan and Saul, but it was his earthquake that really gave them the victory. It was God who gave the increase, but he does use us to sow and to water the seed. God has decided to use us, but ultimately it is God who is to be credited for our victories. And here's where the turning point in our story is. We see that in verse 23, the the Lord saved Israel that day. But then in verse 24, we see the men of Israel were distressed that day. Isn't that strange? Both this awesome day, this victorious day, verse 23, and and then this kind of distressed day all rolled into one. And this phrase, the Lord saved Israel that day, it's also from another part of the Bible. It's from Exodus chapter 14, verse 30. It's the same summary phrase after God delivered Israel from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And God gave them this huge deliverance once again. And God fulfilled His promise that He made in First Samuel chapter 9, verse 16 to deliver Israel from the Philistines through Saul. And God keeps His promises even though His servants fail. God keeps his promises. And we we see the downfall of Saul. Yet God is so faithful. He doesn't break his promises. And he brings about victory over Israel's enemies. Verse 24, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was honey dripping, but no one would put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day, and the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land." Look now how my countenance has changed, has brightened, because I tasted honey, a little honey, a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? So do you sense the tragedy even though the Lord saved Israel? In verse 24, there's the word distressed. And it's the same Hebrew word in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 where it was used to describe those Egyptian taskmasters who oppressed, who pressed, who drove, who exacted, who who exerted demanding pressure on the Israelites who were their slaves. It's the same word. It's describing an oppressor. It's describing a tyrant. And they just had this victory where God delivered them, yet they were distressed. Why is that so? Because Saul got religious again. He puts the entire military under a fast by placing them under this oath. And he seems to want to personalize the whole deal because he wants revenge. Chapter 14, verse 24, "'Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies.'" The people couldn't eat until he had his vengeance. Which was foolish because the soldiers didn't have a way to nourish their bodies to continue on fighting. And the battlehead entered the forest where there was honey on honeycombs and it was dripping on the floor, and it was ready for people to eat, but all they could do was just stare at it oh. right. and And they just stare except for Jonathan, who didn't know right, that his dad made this oath that the military took, And, and back in this time, people were greatly afraid of oaths. So, so they listened. They did as they were told. They didn't eat. Saul was God's anointed and he put the entire military under oath before God and we're told that the people were afraid in verse 26. But Jonathan wasn't there to hear it. And he was actually troubled for the nation. The soldiers were, were tired after their victory and now they, they can't really even finish off the fight because they're, they're famished. They, they, they had the Philistines on the run. All the momentum was going that way, but then it just stopped because they had to take this oath of fasting. Religiosity. And they were in the position to capitalize on this circumstance, but now they have to fast. Verse 31, Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves, and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. The soldiers were famished. They ate meat without properly draining the blood. It wasn't kosher, which was just a religious taboo, religious no no. So you see how how Saul's foolish oath led the people to an offense. And there was a respect for blood that that people had ingrained in their minds. And people had this understanding because the blood was the fluid of life and it belonged to God. And you can look at Genesis chapter 9 verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with it life, that is its blood. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. So this was a serious sin against the commandment that God had given, as opposed to the oath that Saul gave that was not of the Lord. And do you see that Saul's religious burden, what it actually did? It led the people to truly sin against what God wanted. His religiosity caused them to sin. And have any of you ever experienced something like this where someone's misguided religious fervor hurt people more than it helped them to be pleasing to God? And Saul Saul did see the problem his oath caused. He's a very religious man, very pious man, and he takes the rules of religion really seriously. So he brings back a rock so that the animals can be slaughtered on it and so that the blood can be properly drained and the people can properly eat Verse 36. Now Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. We see that the people are are, are still willing to follow Saul, and we see that Saul wanted to do more religious activities. We see that the priest tries to get into the action. And maybe the priest with him wanted to continue where he was called off in verse 19 when Saul told him to withdraw his hand. Or maybe he just wanted something to do because he was just kind of hanging out. Like, what do I do? I'm a priest. Like, I'm supposed to be involved here and I'm not doing anything. Who knows? Uh, But we do know that God gave the victory without any priestly involvement. So the reason why this guy is there is because Saul's just religious. And he feels the need for a priest, even though it was apparent that the priest was not used by God at all for the victory. And the priest, the the, the prophet he should have used was Samuel that left a long time ago because he didn't listen to what God commanded him to do. And Saul, Saul seems hesitant to act without a priest. And he seemed bound by his religious ways. So he listened to this priest who said, Let's pray, who was not Samuel. And it had consequences. They lost more momentum in the battle. Where when God provided an earthquake, and so he becomes religious, and he says, uh, fast. And, and they lost more momentum because he says, oh, pray. And he's just throwing these religious things to do, these religious rituals before battle that hopefully lead us to God, but, it, but instead of that, it, it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't take the place of God. Those religious rituals might lead us to God, but it doesn't take the place of God. And it was clear that God just wasn't working through this guy. So we see how foolish this oath was, the fast. We see how foolish having that priest was who was of a rejected priestly line was. And the solemn oath was violated because Jonathan wasn't there to hear it. It was an innocent mistake. And it caused the people to improperly prepare the meat for eating, which led to God's silence. They sinned because of his religiosity and there was no answer from God when his counsel was sought because an oath was broken and there was this improper butchering and Saul knew something was wrong verse 38 and Saul said come over here all you chiefs of the people and know and see what this sin was today for as the lord lives who saves israel though it be in my in jonathan my son he shall surely die But not a man man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. You notice how Saul has moved from being a strong leader, having strong vision and direction, which the people are willing to follow in verse 36 to this divisive accusation. And the people are willing to follow that too. And leaders, we can lead in good ways and bad ways, and people are going to follow either one. And Saul has moved from fighting the enemy to fighting his fellow Israelites. He has moved from saving his people to purging his people. And those aren't good signs of good leadership. And it's often easier to purge than to fight, isn't it? A lot of churches, churches are guilty of this. Purge instead of kind of, work it out. Hammer it out. And did you notice that Saul likes taking oaths? He made an oath in verse 39, another one in verse 44. And in verse 39, he uses this phrase, as the Lord lives, which is this ancient oath formula. That's how it opens up. And anyway... The lots that were cast from the priest's neck, they were called the the Urim and the Thummim, and I mentioned that the last time we talked about this a few weeks ago, that that we don't don't know much about them back then, and after a few weeks, we still don't know much about them. And uh, just because the priest had them, and they could be used, does not mean that God is forced to answer. God can refuse to work in those things. And you recall that that it's what with these lots that, that, that Saul's reign was partly justified before Israel. It was Samuel who used these lots to point out the tribe of Benjamin, to, to point out Saul specifically hiding in the luggage. But it wasn't just the, the lots that legitimized Saul as a king, it was the victory over the Ammonites that truly cemented the legit, le, legitimacy of Saul's reign as a king. In verse 45 But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance of Israel? Certainly not, as the Lord lives. Not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. And you notice how the people acknowledged acknowledge that, that Jonathan worked with God this day. right In verse 45, Now go back, uh, you go back to verse 6 where Jonathan inquires that it may be of the Lord that He will work for us. And the people have acknowledged that the Lord has worked for them through Jonathan. So they're kind of like confirming each other here. And now it's the people people's turn to kind of step up here. And Saul was God's anointed, and he took these three oaths in verses 24, 39, and 44. But now the people override Saul with this, this counter-argument of their own, and they actually have better theology. And they knew it was through Jonathan that the victory came. And they had this practical proof of God's blessing. And they, they seemed to have grown tired of Saul's over-religiosity when it began creeping over to injustice. And Jonathan made an innocent mistake. And Saul was willing to kill him because of that. And how strange that Saul was willing to kill his own son. His own son who helped bring about this victory. And what what happened to the Saul who had that great victory over the Ammonites in chapter 11 verse 13? And who was so gracious against the people who were against him. Those detractors that didn't want him as king. In 1 Samuel chapter 11 verse 13 he says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And the reason Saul gave for forgiving those men was because God rescued Israel. What happened to that guy? Did God not rescue Israel here? Why does he want to kill his son now? And when God's grace is given to us, it should be given to others. And Saul was not willing to forgive Jonathan for an innocent mistake. It wasn't even like those detractors who who plotted to be against him This was an innocent mistake and he was willing to kill him despite the fact that it was Jonathan's faith that brought that victory. You can see Saul has changed. He's changed. He was really religious, but he's bordering on on being really ungodly with his religious actions. And he, he has the letter of the law, but he seems to have lost the spirit of the law. And Saul is just unraveling before our eyes, and and we're seeing this downfall while while we're seeing the potential greatness of Jonathan. And we see how Jonathan he would probably actually make a great king. And in First Samuel chapter thirteen, verses three through four, Jonathan was victorious against the Philistines in Geba. While in while Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 8 through 15 he moves forward and he doesn't take instructions from God he acts without waiting for Samuel when he was clearly told to wait for Samuel and he for Samuel to deliver God's word to him and for Samuel to offer the sacrifices but he does it instead he does opposite of what he was instructed to do. then in 1 Samuel chapter 14 verses 13 through 15, Jonathan is again successful in a fight against the Philistines while Saul utters this foolish oath in verse 24 that keeps the Israelites from recharging themselves to continue on in the fight. And then we have the wisdom of Jonathan in verses 27 through 30, where he says that if, if the people could only eat, the people we would have a much greater victory over the Philistines. And, and you contrast that to the foolishness of Saul in verses 36 through 44, where he wants to execute his own son. And he's stopped by his own people. So here we have these contrasts of a a foolish king and his successful son, Jonathan. What does all that mean? Well, Jonathan seemed pretty well suited for the throne, right? He seemed like a natural fit to be king. But it's something that he can never have because of what his foolish father did. It looks like Jonathan would have been a fine king. But it's impossible as Saul's dynasty will never take place. First Samuel chapter 13, verse 14 says, Your kingdom shall not continue. No heir to the throne, no matter how good of a king your son's going to be, that's it. You're the last one. Well, this doesn't seem fair. Why does Jonathan have to make way for David when it when it seems like he'd do a fine job as a king? There's examples of him being a great leader. Why are Jonathan's opportunities ruined by Saul's bad choices? Why does God work like that? This, this seems like such a waste of talent. This seems like a, a waste of potential here. But I think that's just our limited way of thinking in our day and age. We tend to think that self-fulfillment is a right. And it trumps everything else in our life. And our mentality is to first think of self. And that we place merit and ingenuity and creativity and innovation, entrepreneurship, discipline, in in, in a place deserving of God's blessing and deserving of success. That we can earn those things. That God should make us successful if we earn those things by the way we perform. But, But that's not the way that it is with Jonathan, is it? What we have to understand is that the kingdom is not Saul's. Nor is the kingdom Jonathan's. The kingdom is God's. Only God's. God's mission in His kingdom is not to advance our careers or, or to advance the places we have in society or to reward performance. God's mission is to ensure that His kingdom comes. And we serve in His kingdom. It's not our kingdom And oftentimes we forget who we are serving, believing that we are serving our own and we deserve certain things. And the kingdom was not Jonathan's to have. The kingdom was Jonathan's to serve. And the kingdom is not for us to have. The kingdom is for us to serve. Some of us may consider Jonathan's life tragic because all he got to do was serve God in the place where God posted him. Is that really tragic? That's glorious. What better place to be than where God places us to be used in His kingdom? You can't think of a better place than that. What better place to be than being content to live out God's calling in the place under the situations He's put us in where God posts us to occupy His kingdom? You can't get any better than that. And the day is going to come when Jonathan dies. And I'm sorry to ruin that for some of you that weren't aware of that. But it's in chapter 31. And he's going to die beside his father Saul in battle. And Jonathan had quite a life. He, he, he had an awesome friendship with David, uh, who he tried to protect from his dad while he was trying to be faithful to his dad. And, and Saul's anger would come against Jonathan, not just in chapter 14, but later on as well. He had this pretty eventful life. And then we get to chapter 31, where Saul is fighting the Philistines with his three sons and his eldest son. Jonathan falls in battle at Saul's side. The end. And so some may say, what a waste. What a waste of potential. So much potential there. Really? Jonathan served where God placed him. You can't ask for any more. And at the end of his life, he was found in a situation serving the calling that God had given him. Is that really a waste? And maybe we're thinking too highly of ourselves. Maybe we aren't thinking highly enough of God's omniscience, of God's omnipotence, like Jonathan did in verse 6, when he says, it may be. I'm leaving it up to the big guy. Right? Maybe we think too highly of ourselves and we, we believe that it's our kingdom and, and we are being served in, as opposed to us being in God's kingdom, and we are serving him in it. In First Corinthians chapter 7 verse 17, Paul tells us, "But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Let's continue in our uh, text, verse 47. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jishui, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. Then the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was a fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. We see here that Saul wasn't cursed by God because of those three broken oaths that he took in God's name. And God still gave Saul a lot of victories. You see from these last several verses, he Saul is presented as a valiant, brilliant, successful military commander. And perhaps the author placed this ending summary here of Saul and his family to point out that it wasn't because the oaths were broken that caused Saul's downfall. It was because of his heart. Remember when he was saying, "Like you, shall have no, you wouldn't have a dynasty, that he's going to find a man after his own heart? It was his heart. It wasn't these broken oaths. And, and there have been a lot of changes in Saul. And in, in chapter 11, verses 2, 9, and 13, there's this Hebrew word there for to save, and it's used in reference to Saul's work. So Saul was used to save. In chapter 11. But then in chapter 14, that same root word is used again there three times. But this time it's in connection with Jonathan, his son, not Saul. And that's in verse 6, 23 and 45 of chapter 14. The same root word is there. And we see that Saul was changing, yet God was still using him. And we need to be as courageous as the Bible and see the good about people, despite the bad that is there as well. And even though Saul was on the decline, and we saw that he was not the same guy, that there was still some good in him, that God still used him to be successful in these military conquests. And may we be people who are able to see the good in people, even though you know some, some people might be on the decline, you're seeing like, oh, that, that guy's sinful, or he's, he's doing this and he's doing that. And, but may we be able to see the good in people. May we be able to recognize that they have families too, and we need to be in prayer for them and and the way that we view them and look at them God yeah, God may do something different, but God uses them still. may we see the good in people. let's pray Lord, we thank you for this text, and we pray Lord that uh you would speak to us through it in our lives when we seem to have uh, walked away from it. Uh, Lord, may we recognize when we're being just overly religious and relying on ritual, relying on religious objects more than we are of you. And help us to not rely on superstition or, or just patterns of how you do things, but May we just come humbly before your feet and ask that it may be that perhaps, maybe, you are going to work in this thing. And may we have just that imagination of faith for you to do incredible things. And recognize that we can't demand or claim or or make you do anything. That you're God and we're here to serve your kingdom. Forgive us when we are looking out for ourselves and thinking that we are the lords of our own kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.